Oh, yeah, no, I mean, there's uh, there's no coincidence that, like, at least, I mean, you can look at, in the year 2000, the uh, ta- even under the Taliban, they're like, okay, we probably shouldn't have our entire economy based on opium <laughs> harvest, which is <laughs> essentially what had happened, because after the decade of of civil war caused largely by the U S like most of the rest of the economy in Afghanistan, such that it was, was destroyed. Right. <clears throat> so, cause there's like, I just finished reading the politics of heroin and they had a bunch of, they had like interviews in that with poppy farmers, like poor poppy farmers from Afghanistan from that period, like the late nineties, early two thousands. And they were like, I don't want to grow this shit. This stuff is horrible, but I can't grow anything else because we don't have the infrastructure. Cause like, uh, the amount of like irrigation you need in a place like Afghanistan to harvest much else, you either need a huge amount of investment, uh, to set up the infrastructure for that. Or you need a ton of time because they talk about like one of the things they used to do to supplement, you know, the issues with droughts and other stuff is mm-hmm. they used to have a ton of like um, like trees that they would plant for nuts and fruit and all sorts right. of other things. But well, growing it would also stabilize the soil, right? Because right. they have those big root networks. Exactly. But the problem with that is is that A, that takes years and years and years to set up. Mm-hmm. And as part of the Civil War. After, you know, the, um, the Soviet Union uh, was overthrown and then after the Taliban with continued support from the U.S. ended up like taking power and there was like constant struggle between the different warlord groups that, that came out of the Mujahideen. And as part of that, as part of the Taliban's victory, the way that they did this was they attacked the material base of their enemy support, which was to chop down all of these trees that in traditional – like interior like warfare struggles prior to, you know, the 20th century had kind of been Mm -hmm. labeled as like off limits as like, you know, people need this to eat. So we're not going to fuck with these because then if everyone does it, 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 you know, it it destroys everything in the country. And right. Well, that's what ended up happening. And and so the only thing left for people to do was grow opium. And then the U S is like, well, you know, we, we really want to eradicate, opium so but we hate the taliban so we're not going to give you the resources needed to do that (laughs) well and so the whole time like even let's say if you were a farmer who had the resources to set up your own irrigation system and and change the consistency of the soil to grow a new and different crop maybe not even something long term like nuts from a tree but like i don't know radishes or whatever else would grow in the area some kind of root vegetable or something and then you turn around who's going to buy it from you right Right. Exactly. If the entire regional economy is already specifically tailored towards opium and maybe a couple of other little agricultural products here and there. If you show up with, you know, a bushel full of like leafy greens or something, you're just not going to get a reasonable price for them. Right. But and the 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 thing that I think is kind of shocking is that even with and the other thing is to to be clear, this is not like me trying to praise the Taliban in any way, because everybody who made up the Taliban had used heroin to fund their (laughs) armies beforehand. So it's not like when they did the, the eradication campaign, it was necessarily from some, you know, altruistic place, but they did actually succeed right before the U S invasion in 
almost eradicating heroin production there and, and, and dropping the, the opium harvest by something like 80, 90 percent. But then, you know, U.S. moves in and, and, and once again, it shoots through the roof. Like, and the other thing that the book points out that I thought was really interesting is that while there had been poppy production in Afghanistan for a while, like basically forever, it was always a pretty low um, level of production. Like basically you'd have, because you'd have like for regional consumption, especially like because of Afghanistan borders Iran. And there was a long period where opium smoking was part of, uh, especially like upper class culture in, in Iran. And in the same way that like, you know, it got imposed in places like the UK imposing it on China and and other things. And so it was a pretty low level of production there for local use, for regional use. And it was really the CIA's covert operations that launched that shit into overdrive. And it's the same thing that happened in the Golden Triangle and all these other places. It's just the, the not that like the CIA introduced drug production to there, but that basically by the time they got in and started working with all these groups in the area, it went through the roof. Now you have dropped off the call because I assume you're... Okay. No, Um, yeah... My, my whole house got fucked up for a second. Um, I got to make sure that my laptop doesn't try to switch back over to the other internet. All right. Sounds good. All right. Well, um, <laughs> well we were having a really good conversation, but the power <laughs> in my apartment flashed. Uh, so I guess I'll just cut right to the chase. Uh, welcome, everybody, to an episode of Work Stoppage. It's just two of your hosts today, uh, me and Dan. And... Uh, as soon as I get everything on my computer situated again, we're going to dunk on Nathan J. Robinson. We're going to have a really good time. Yeah, that's right. Uh, no Lena this week. Uh, Lena will be back next week. So we will attempt to have an episode, which I'm sure we will fuck up in some way. But thankfully, we've got a great thing to start off on, as, as John was mentioning, because, you know... It may not be necessarily, the, you know, the, quite the exact same stuff we always talk about every week. Right. But this is absolutely a labor story where oh, absolutely. We, ha- we have the, the classic instance of just a union busting campaign by, by you know, a, a, a right wing business owner. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is like such a funny situation, too, because like, of course, I think I first saw it like many people did uh, from Lita Gold's posts on Twitter. Uh, her display name now is like Lita Gold uh, fired for doing socialism. <laughs> and it seems like uh, the staff at Current Affairs, notable, you know, progressive or whatever you want to call it, to the left, kind of occupies the same political space as Jacobin um, publication. Apparently the staff there was trying to organize a a uh, cooperative and turn it into a workers' cooperative. And instead, Nathan J. Robinson summarily fired everybody. The <laughs> yeah. very same guy who has posted many, many times um, about how his whole politics is just like worker-owned and worker-operated business places. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, obviously, you know, 
anybody who's followed uh, John on Twitter or or is friends with John on Facebook will will know that John has had a very consistent uh, anti cravat wearing socialist stance for for a long time and and has really been borne out in this story. <laughs> yes, I mean uh, I I gotta admit uh, I I feel bad for gloating, but I do feel very vindicated by the fact that Nathan J. Robinson turned out to be a piece of shit that everybody can <laughs> easily identify now because I have been going off about my hatred for this guy for a couple of years at least, and I've gotten quite a bit of pushback from people who are like, "Oh, he does important work. Uh, his publication helped me here and there, like have better takes and whatever." And I'm like, I don't begrudge any of that any of that shit but like when you see a guy who looks like acid test Willy Wonka you have to know (laughs) that that's not your friend that's not a friend of labor right there like weird 18th century plantation owner vibes do not have a place on the left I'm sorry (laughs) this is something you should know just from instinct yeah and and so yeah for for folks that you know may not necessarily have been following this specifically basically as John was saying you know, Current Affairs is a vaguely left magazine that has kind of put itself in this like left libertarian space, like anarcho socialist sort of, but right. never really pinning down to any specific line or anything. Um, it was, I, I guess, vaguely anti authoritarian, whatever that means. And, you know, they do, pu- they, they've published good pieces in the past. They've never been something that I've, you know, found particular, like it's not something I would check regularly, but they put out, you know, good pieces every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And as John was alluding to, you know, uh, in an attempt to try and make sure that the, the magazine was living up to its principles, practicing its, it, it's practicing what they preach. The vast majority of the workforce there at at Current Affairs, you know, mostly the, the writers and the staff, had come to you know this, who was de facto chair of the the magazine Nathan J. Robinson with a proposal to actually say, okay, look, we've had we really like working here. This has been a great magazine. We really believe in what we're doing, but we think that in order to really make this work better, we would need this to be a co-op so that everyone has mm-hmm. a say in how everything is run. And uh, that did not meet with the sort of, uh, you know, reaction that you would think you would get from somebody professing to be a socialist or an anarchist or really anybody on the left. Like instead of getting the, yeah, sure. Let's figure out how to work through the details on that. I think that's a great idea, which is probably what I would expect to hear from somebody who actually, you know, wants to live those principles. They got, right what I think you would get as a reaction from any capitalist newspaper or, or, or magazine, which was, oh, you're trying to steal my magazine. Fuck you guys. And they just, and yeah, he, he like fired everyone, deleted their Slack access, and basically essentially purged the magazine <laughs> of, of everyone except him because he, yeah. and he admitted, like basically stated in the statement that he put out that like, he wanted the magazine to be his and be his vision and, and, and all this other stuff that he had this sort of weird vague just, there was this part of the justification that I thought was very funny was the whole idea of, you know, I don't think it should be a co-op because I don't think current affairs should be owned by anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That's very weird. Uh, his whole thing where it was like, if I'm in charge of it, I can make sure it's like good. 
was basically his his justification, which is just like that's what everyone who's in charge of something and doesn't want to relinquish that is essentially saying is like, well, I think I do a good job. And I mean, I don't know. I've seen so many less professedly leftist companies do infinitely better than just nuking the entire thing and not posting and, and like releasing a couple of vague statements about it. It's if I wasn't so excited to have been right about Nathan J. (laughs) Robinson, I would be kind of shocked about this. Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I, I can totally see if you built a creative project and, and, you know, suddenly you get, you're faced with the, even, you know, even, even if you really did believe in the, the, the left-wing principles of, you know, collectivism and, and workers' democracy, I can see some hesitant, initial hesitance of being like, oh man, I put so much of myself into this and, and now I'm going to, you know, lose control over it. I'm a little hesitant about that. But to just go right to a hundred with the knee-jerk reaction and just fire everyone, like, that is just such a revealing move on that. And and this is, to be clear, this is somebody who and I kept the screenshot of this in here because like it's kind of it's incredibly ironic, who just at the end of June in last month tweeted out this. Imagine if you controlled your workplace and could decide how the money was spent and your boss was an elected leader rather than a feudal tyrant. What horror. <laughs> and, and apparently that was not the the tongue-in-cheek uh, joke that we all thought it was when he tweeted that. That was just a literal statement from... Yeah, he's, he's actually scared of this. He's just like uh, Nathan J. Robinson is just H.P. Lovecraft. But instead of uh, racist, he's legitimately just scared of workers <laughs> getting their due. Uh, yeah. So I mean, obviously, like, I, it, it's it's one thing to come in here and you know we can we can we can gloat about this because Nathan J. Robinson's always been kind of annoying, but it does really suck for the the folks that were working at Current Affairs and mm-hmm. were were clearly you know trying to make the magazine into something that really embodied its principles and and. So this sort of thing is really disappointing, like not just from a like now you you know, you see stuff like the National Review putting out articles or like, see, the socialists are all hypocrites, which is annoying. But like, you know, they're going right. to write that shit anyway. But I, it does like I, I feel for the, the, the writers who are actually and, and the staff members who were really like putting themselves into this and really got left in the lurch. So, uh, I mean, hopefully, uh, you know, the, the reputation that those folks have been able to build up from their work at current affairs is able to get them you know, gigs elsewhere. And Uh, yeah, I mean, if they start up their own thing or if they start publishing anywhere else, um, I mean, follow these people, follow light a goal. I don't know the rest of the staff, uh, necessarily, but I have to understand, like there was a lot of good content that got published in current affairs and you have to imagine the lion's share of that did not come from Nathan J. Robinson. So you can still support these, these workers, these journalists, these writers and reporters and whatever, uh, in, in, in the future and wherever they end up. Uh, maybe at a workers cooperative, but if not, you know, you know, if they're publishing independently or whatever, still show them some support. Right. And, and it, and obviously this is disappointing, but it does, you know, fit into that, that category of stuff we've, we've seen a lot of lately with, you know, uh, bosses and, and company cultures that express a progressive outward face, but Mm -hmm. when actually faced with real workplace democracy, 
completely, you know, turn right into the the very image of, you know, the Monopoly man, <laughs> stereotypical yes. capitalist, and, and in just in a more literal way <laughs> here for Nathan J. Robinson. But so, yeah, I mean, it's it really shows the importance of the sort of, you know, uh, union organizing and collective struggle to make it so that if you're doing this at, say, a larger institution that can't necessarily afford to just fire all of their staff without going under, uh, that you've you've got everybody ready and so that there, there's really nowhere for the management to go except to accept your demands. Right, exactly. Well, I mean, speaking of larger organizations and <laughs> organizations you would expect to see this kind of behavior from, uh, we want to talk about the Indiana Pepsi strike in which it would seem that the Teamsters have actually come to an agreement with the company. Um this is within a day of the deadline that would have led to a local town entirely boycotting Pepsi products uh, that we talked about last week. Yeah, so we we don't have a ton of info on this yet, but I just wanted to to throw it in here because we did we did talk about it last week. Like we mentioned that they were getting you know a very cool amount of support from the the local town of Hammond, where their their city government was threatening to boycott Pepsi products entirely as of uh, last Friday, if the plant was not able to come to a fair agreement with the Teamsters. And right. obviously, you know, without more information and, and more time, we, we won't necessarily know if that was, you know, a major catalyst. But the fact that the strike had dragged on for almost six weeks and clearly there was becoming, you know, more pressure from outside for the company to agree. And, and so that can't have done anything except help. Uh, so obviously mm-hmm. we'll have to see what the details are. Uh, we know that it's it's a new four year deal, and uh, and the majority of the workers you know voted to accept it. Uh, there was a quote from Teamsters Local 142 uh, where uh, one of the people there said, "quote It's a new proposal. It was put forward after plenty of meetings and lots of discussions. There's a return to work settlement that says how we're going to come back and ensures guys aren't going to get retaliated against for anything they said to managers or anything managers said to us. And so that's always good to see. But obviously, yeah. like we'll have to see the details before we really know how much of a victory this is. But I think that at this point, like when they've been out for six weeks and they're, you know, you you were starting to see finally more news outlets pick this up. So I I think that there's got to be at least some victories in there and and the outside pressure had to have helped with that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you have an entire town in the region kind of turning their, their ill will against you, I think that that does motivate like really large, you know, front facing PR oriented companies like Pepsi, especially. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll, you know, we'll keep, an eye on that. If there's, there's more information that comes out of it, we'll, we'll absolutely let folks know. But there's one story I think this week that's probably gotten, uh, although we've got a couple big ones in here this week that has probably got more national reverberations than, than mm-hmm. most others. And that's folks may have seen that this week, a judge in California has ruled that prop 22 which listeners of the show and anyone who follows labor in the, in, in this country will know is, the basically the permanent misclassification law that was was passed right. by a ballot initiative in California last year 
And this judge has ruled that that proposition is unconstitutional by California state constitution and therefore is going to have to get thrown out, which is a huge victory. Yeah, because he he ruled really that I think here's the funny thing about Prop 22 is they probably wouldn't have faced this ruling if they hadn't tried to set it up to be an in perpetuity kind of rule yes. because that was the, the technical you know issue that this, that this judge found with this is uh, superior court judge Frank Roche ruled that the law illegally quote limits the power of a future legislature to define app based drivers as workers subject to workers compensation laws. So if they had only tried to like just temporarily classify them as that and have it on the books going forward, they might've gotten away with it. But uh, the idea that like, this is a binding classification that lasts for Ever is just like one iota of corporate greed too strong to technically be upholdable because he didn't just rule that it was unconstitutional. He also ruled that it was entirely unenforceable, which <laughs> yeah. I thought was really interesting. Yeah, like that you're exactly right. Like it it, it is funny that it, it seems like the primary thing that the gig companies screwed up on here was trying to just absolutely permanently eclipse the power of the state where mm-hmm. they included in this, in this ballot initiative that, that got passed, you know, prop 22, that any future amendments to it, any future changes to it would need seven eighths of the state legislature to pass it, which is means it's impossible. Like that, you can't get anything. Yes. You can get seven eighths approval on like voting for a dog to be the, you know, like the ceremonial vice mayor or something, something no one would disagree with. You can't get seven eighths of any bourgeois body to agree on anything like that, much less a labor rights issue. No, yeah, not at all. It was deliberately set up to just completely foreclose the idea that gig economy workers would ever get like proper classification as employees, as full-time workers. Uh, is which is ridiculous because I mean, as we've said many times, like many of them work more than forty hours a week by leaps and bounds. Absolutely, a lot of gig economy workers have to work seventy and eighty hour weeks just to pay their bills and rent. Especially in some of these incredible, incredibly high uh, rent economies, which are rampant in places like California. Yeah, and and there have been. I mean, we've mentioned this before, but there have been studies that have been done, especially on, you know, rideshare drivers like with Uber and Lyft, that mm-hmm. the the average minimum wage is so low that based on the company's, you know, pricing schemes and how much of the money actually goes to the drivers, that when you actually figure in the standard amount, like the standard calculations that the, the government uses for wear and tear on vehicles and, you know, how much mileage, how much time, how much idle time, how much that contributes to the loss of value in the vehicle, the amount of, of increasing the cost of ownership. You end up with a lot of these drivers making essentially nothing because the, the fact that since they're classified as contractors instead of employees means they're entirely on the hook for any expenses to their car. And so since they're paid purely piecemeal, you know, not while they're waiting for drives out, not in between them, that you they end up essentially completely eating away all the money they make when in, eventually they have to have like a car repair. Right, exactly. 
the amount of wear and tear that it puts on your vehicle, the and the amount of time that it takes out of your life that you could be otherwise using to make money is just like fucking ridiculous. And of course, the auto the the gig economy companies are all planning to appeal this ruling, right? Right. Like they they want to make sure that Prop Twenty Two is upheld. Although um, this is a very big first step towards striking it down, so I have yeah. to imagine they're going to face a pretty difficult battle if they want to get this upheld. Yeah, and and so while I will say that that um, the it, it, Roche, as you mentioned, specifically did say that the the problem with the legislation and why it was unconstitutional was the restrictions it put on the legislature. He did say in his ruling, "quote It appears only to protect the economic interest of the network companies in having a divided, ununionized workforce, which is." Not not the stated goal of the legislation, which right. is like, yeah, man, that's, that's what all this shit is. It's, it's all obfuscated attacks on workers' rights. Like I'm, I, if that's the problem with it, which of course is, it should be, I'm like, I wish you'd struck this down earlier. Just said it could never yeah. go into effect. <laughs> if only, if only they had just stated that their goal was to disenfranchise workers right. at the top of the legislation, he could have <laughs> upheld the law. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, there, there was also a quote of it, quote in here from, from Nicole Moore from Rideshare Drivers United, who said, as a labor movement, whether we're drivers, delivery people, or dog walkers, we have to know the only place for us to go is full labor rights. No matter what we're told, it's not about protecting our flexibility. Once this law was in place, the companies took away our flexibility. The only thing we can do is push for collective bargaining. We cannot be divided. Together, we have to fight for full labor rights for app-based workers. Because the technology is coming to every industry, and it's going to be all our fight. Just like we've seen in the UK, the companies haven't changed their position. There will be a lot more fights in the courts, and we will need the full weight of state government and our attorney general. To have that, we will need to be absolutely organized and exert our voices. And right. and I think she's she's a hundred percent right on that. It, it, the, because like what what one of the things she was alluding to there was we'd mentioned a while ago was that there was a ruling in the UK Supreme Court that said just essentially specifically that you can't. Like rideshare drivers are misclassified if they're classified as independent contractors and they have to be classified as as full employees. But since that ruling, we have seen attempts by this, these companies like Uber and Lyft to essentially say, okay, fine, fine, yeah, you made that ruling. But let's narrow the scope of that so that it only applies to the smallest amount of workers possible and right. really try and restrict that. So like the the amount of money that these companies are able to throw at their lawyers who are then able to, you know, chip away and, and pare down these rulings really does as she she mentions like that's why it can't just be like a fight for one individual like group of rideshare drivers one specific issue with these that, that these folks are facing it's a push for full employee rights for every one of these workers regardless of which state they're in regardless of which app they're on and that like specifically the only way that we're going to do that is through through organizing you know direct action and, and collective, you know, work by the workers ourselves and that we're not going to be able to just, you know, rely on the, the goodwill of, of the legislature to, to do that sort of stuff. Right. Well, because they keep trying to export this kind of Prop 22 legislation, not just around the country, but all around the world. I mean, we've seen it in the UK. We've seen it in Australia. I think we did a story about yeah. a judge who had to strike down a piece of legislation that was that was trying to get that they were trying to get approved that would permanently misclassify workers as well. And then most recently, 
recently, we have an article here from Jacobin talking about uh, Uber and Lyft trying to implement a Prop 22-like piece of legislation in Massachusetts, of course. Yeah. And so this one, this is one of those things where uh, the Prop 22 ruling came out uh, after this story was put out, but because the legal issue with Prop 22 is specifically for California law, the, you know, this this effort in Massachusetts is still full speed ahead. And, right. and it's basically a copy-paste of, of Prop 22 just trying to move it into Massachusetts because we reported uh, earlier in the year on an effort to kind of do like a light version of this mm-hmm. in Massachusetts where they were starting out trying to do a portable benefits package sort of thing for gig workers, essentially trying to head off attempts to cl- to just classify workers appropriately as employees by simply saying, well, no, no, no. Okay, there's problems with the gig economy, and we'll fix that by giving you access to incredibly shitty, unaffordable health care right. that doesn't actually give you anything and has like a seven grand de- deductible. <laughs> yeah, well, but you can take it with you if you right. if you move right. from one position to the next. That's the 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 famed flexibility of the capitalist gig economy system. So this is um there there's a there's an organization right Massachusetts Coalition for Independent Work <laughs> which is trying to seek the approval of of this ballot measure that's basically copying Prop 22. And that sounds like a pretty cool organization, right? Massachusetts Coalition for Independent Work. But it's one of those situations where it's really just a front for Uber and Lyft and other rideshare and delivery companies in the area. Kind of like a... Oh, God... There's there's a specific one that I'm thinking of that sounds like a consumer organization, but is really just like the beef lobby or something. What? Oh yeah yeah yeah. No, I, I know what you're talking <laughs> about. But they they've been trying this shit with everything because there was a there was a whole fake union that they made up in New York right. when they were trying to push this shit. It was like the Independent Drivers Guild or something like that. Right. That that they were trying to promote this exact same stuff in New York, but through collective organizing uh from you know from the ground up through groups like uh Los Deliveristas Unidos that that effort was pushed back in New York but be, you know because thank, thanks to the the glorious wonders of federalism they have 50 different state legislatures to, to push this stuff through and so Massachusetts does seem to be the the, the next attempt on their list and specifically you know like this is basically a copy of prop 22 it it specifically would enshrine the status of workers as contractors right into state law which excludes workers from minimum wage and overtime laws it excludes workers from protection against discrimination from protection against injury what limited protections there exist you know under things like workman's comp and osha uh and basically in exchange for all that they're proposing Oh, well, don't worry. We'll put in a minimum wage, although not the state minimum wage. (laughs) And we'll put in stipends for healthcare. But UC Berkeley did a study on these exact same proposals that when they were like, you know, originally being thrown out there for Prop 22 before it was passed. But they found out that functionally what the minimum wage that would result from these really kind of arcane formulas that are put into this legislation is like $5 and 64 cents an hour. 
Right, which isn't enough to pay any bills, <laughs> right? Much less rent or anything. Yeah, like that's the thing. It's like seven twenty-five, which is you know still the federal minimum wage, isn't enough for anyone to live on anywhere in this country. And based on the way that the you know algorithmic piecework that all of this shit ultimately is works, you're paying people even less than that, which is really you know the whole point. It's right. that's the that's the disruption that these gig economies have done. It's not that they're doing any of this work in it with new tech, really new technology or, you know, new management techniques that, that make this all so much better than the, the taxis used to do. It's like, no, you, your whole innovation is just figuring out loopholes in the law or writing new yep. ones to evade labor protections. The Silicon Valley disruption model is basically showing up with an even more exploitative like plan <laughs> Yeah. And it's like you said, it's usually like just knowing how to work the technicalities of the law, the letter of the law, so that you can get your way. And then once you get a foothold, pretty soon before you know it, you're writing your own laws, like Prop 22, um, you know, or, you know, propositions that could get drafted into legislation. So, yeah, I mean, they, they've been trying to launch this in a few other states as well, besides Massachusetts. I think some of the, was it Arkansas or one of the southern states uh, um, was facing a, a ballot initiative similar to this as well? Yeah, they've tried in a few places. Texas, I know, has already adopted some of these principles, although I don't right. think they have it in quite the same comprehensive package. But yeah, I mean, they're basically trying to bring this to every state that they can because it's their entire business model like the the only reason that uber and lyft can provide cheaper rides than than taxis is because they treat their drivers like shit <laughs> like that's right that's their whole thing there's no secret in there that like the algorithm has magically figured out a way to make giving rides cheaper it's just they figured out an easier way to exploit like you said an easier way to exploit people Mm -hmm. and, and and so there's a uh, there's already you know there's already campaigns underway to push back against this specifically there is a group the coalition to protect workers rights which has got a whole bunch of labor groups civil rights groups as part of it that have launched the no prop 22 Massachusetts campaign and they there's a quote in, from Vice in here where, from Beth Griffith who is a Uber driver and a spokesperson for the coalition who said quote the ballot language from Uber and Lyft is a $100 million ploy to avoid paying taxes, avoid paying workers fairly, and allow big tech companies to buy their way out of the basic obligations of every other business. Drivers and delivery workers, most of us black, brown, and immigrants, are tired of being treated like second-class workers by these multi-billion dollar tech companies. Hell yeah. I mean, like, and you, you, these jobs, this is the new, like, uh, this is the new like catch all immigrant work as well. Like they, yes. it used to be like, um, you know, they would like families would bring someone in and they would work at a restaurant or whatever. And then gradually like agricultural and other low paying jobs or jobs that were excluded from a lot of labor protections started to become the industries that a lot of immigrant workers were forced into meat packing, all kinds of other things. And now it's just gig work. It's just like, Oh, if you want to come over here from another country, you are going to be forced into a working situation where you're guaranteed to make like less than half of what your American citizen counterparts in other industries are making. Right. And the thing that one of the things that I've, you know, started to kind of just think about with this, the way this gig economy stuff relates to just generally the political economy of the U.S. is it really feels like they're kind of trying to institutionalize slash formalize what in a lot of other places has been termed the informal sector of the economy. Right. Like 
especially I, I'm largely thinking of drawing from stuff like Mike Davis's book, Planet of Slums, where he talks about the effects of ne- the rise of neoliberalism on urban environments, especially throughout the global South and the way that that has dispossessed a lot of people of the land that they would used to live on and contributed to the growth of, of massive slums in a lot of cities and how that is largely tied into the, you know, growth of sectors of the economy that are outside of the traditional employment and a lot of that same stuff. So this would be in, in, uh, in other places, it would be informal taxi driver work or, you know, like in, in Southeast Asia, you would see stuff like rickshaw drivers would be included in this, but also like food stands, all, all sorts of things that like would not necessarily fall under your traditional employment and taxation structure, but end up being the sort of thing that just is the only option for a lot of folks. If, if you don't have, you know, whatever specific piece of paper qualification, any of the, the, the decently paying jobs say that you need, or, you know, the, the personal connections or, or any, any of the various things that you really need to get access to a lot of these jobs. Right. And that stuff gets pushed to the margins and in a lot of cases, you know, in those would be referred to as the informal economy. And it really seems like all these gig companies have done is figured out, what if we figured out a way to extract money out of that and still not yeah. pay anybody, but we'll just have the same horrific labor conditions with absolutely no protections whatsoever. But what if we could skim off of that? <laughs> exactly. I mean, that was like when I was living in Pittsburgh, it took Uber and Lyft a really, really long time to get established there because Pittsburgh had a very active jitney scene where you could, mm-hmm. in almost any neighborhood, ask the bartender or the server or whatever, like, where's the jitney station? And you could go pay a local six or 10 bucks or 15 bucks to drive you where you needed to go. And people really fucking loved their jitneys. And that was like part of the informal economy. Like, yes, it it wasn't like bartering or anything like it used like currency exchange, but that was a way that like a lot of people who were otherwise disenfranchised were able to make their money. And without a lot of overhead, it worked for a lot of people in a way that being an Uber or a Lyft driver just never, ever, ever will going forward. Yeah. Um, I mean, unless they're, classified as full-time employees and granted the benefits that come along with that and legal protections. But you know, that's their, that's the precise thing that they're fighting against. Right. So, and, and so I think the key here for, for folks who aren't necessarily, if you're not directly, you know, involved in this sector is just to, whenever you have discussions about this with people is to, to get push back really hard on that myth of the idea that this whole, everything about the, the gig economy is about flexibility because that's that's their big propaganda push, right? Is is that like, oh well, the reason that we don't you know have just a, a normal time based minimum wage is because this is you know people are doing this as a second job. It's to it's to make a little extra money, which is bullshit. That's the vast majority of folks working in the gig economy yep. are doing it as their primary form of employment, and usually working you know two or three different gig jobs to try and make yep. ends meet. And so it's, it's to me, that's just like the new argument that it's the new evolution of what you would always see with minimum wage jobs. And Mm -hmm. you would in the fast, specifically the fast food industry, because you'd always hear those jobs are for teenagers. Those aren't to make a career on. So it's fine for minimum wage to be really low, all ignoring the fact that the average minimum wage worker is, I believe like a, 
a like 35 year old and, and, and usually mm-hmm. like, you know, an, an adult, like, uh, I think the average is like a 35 year old woman with like one or two kids. So it's like right. the, the whole, that whole argument, which is used to prop up these exploitative measures is built entirely on lies. And it's just to play to, you know, the psychology around this stuff to try and get people to shrug it off as, Oh yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah. And, and it's so it's imperative that, that we push back against those sorts of narratives when we talk to people about this stuff. Right. Well, cause people still think it's the 1950s, right? Where <laughs> yes. it's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go get a phosphate from the kid behind the counter at the Sodi <laughs> shop. And maybe he's 16 and he like, he's thrilled to be making 75 cents an hour. But like the, those are just not even like, that's not even the same econ- planet of economic conditions as the United States is living in right now. Um, right. So yeah. And I yeah. mean, you know, the, when we quote unquote like had it good like that too, that all came at like the horrific price of imperialism, and there's a lot to talk about there as well. Yeah, but like of even just dealing with domestic economic situations, like just know like working at Burger King is not quote unquote for teenagers. Like when I, that's why like the lady at Meyer asked me like, "Hey, we need baggers. Do you know any high school students or retirees?" Which yeah. is like that should let you know that like shit has been changing. Yeah. And so obviously, you know, we're going to keep an eye on this one as, as you know, we approach election season. Uh, but right. I, I do think it's, it's good to see that there, you know, there's already been some organizing work against this sort of stuff on the ground in Massachusetts. So there's already groups in place to push back against this, but obviously, you know, these gig companies, have a ton of money. They, they, I believe Prop 22 was the most expensive ballot measure ever uh, in the country uh, mm-hmm. when they passed. I think they spent something like $220 million Jesus on it. So, so I would expect another gigantic propaganda blitz here. And so, you know, any listeners in Massachusetts or the area, like, this is a good place to be, you know, talking to people about why this is all nonsense. Yes. And staying in Massachusetts and staying in with some nonsense. <laughs> right. Well, We've got a, a story here from Labor Notes about the longest nursing strike in the country at the moment, which is dragging into its sixth month with uh, nurses at St. Vincent's Hospital in Worcester, Mass, who have been on the picket line fighting for fair wages and safe working conditions during the pandemic against the company that owns their hospital, Tenet Healthcare, which is one of the largest healthcare companies in the U.S., and have taken full advantage of the pandemic to prop up their own financial position at the expense of their workers. Right. So these nurses are not receiving the, uh, the tools or the pay that they need to take care of the outrageous number of COVID patients that they're each basically put in charge of. The hospital is constantly completely swamped with, um, patients and criminally understaffed. And then the, uh, a parent organization tenant goes and uses federal COVID aid to hire scab nurses instead of raising the working conditions for the full-time nursing staff that they have there. Uh, and so one of the main things that I see that the Massachusetts nurses are pushing for is a lower nurse to patient ratio. Uh, and the union says its demand would cost a would cost tenant a fraction of the 100 million it has spent on out-of-state replacement nurses. Uh, understaffing was a major factor in the 49-day strike at St. Vincent in 2000, where the union ultimately won one of the first nurse contracts to ban mandatory overtime. And uh, I can't find the the data in here, but 
they were saying that some of them were being put in charge of as many as 20 COVID patients at the same time per nurse. Uh, that, yeah, that was at another facility run by tenant. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so tenant being a gigantic healthcare firm owns hospitals and healthcare facilities around the country. And right. that's one of the things that I was so glaring in this story. I mean, it was the, the horror stories from places all over the country run by this firm. And, Specifically, it, what, what John was alluding to was there was a, a quote from a representative from California, Katie Porter, who specifically said, quote, Tenant understaffed the emergency room and intensive care unit at Detroit Medical Center's Sinai Grace Hospital so severely that single nurses were charged with treating as many as 20 COVID-19 patients at a time. The emergency room ran out of oxygen and beds and was forced to prop dead bodies upright in chairs, and dozens may have died for lack of basic attention from the underwhelmed staff. Goddamn. And, yeah, and so this is the sort of shit that we see from these companies where instead of what you would think the response would be from the government to that of, you know, oh, that's incredibly fucked up. This company basically is directly responsible for a whole bunch of unnecessary COVID deaths. We should clearly strip them of their assets and charge their board with crimes that they have obviously committed. But no, because this is America, what has instead happened is Tenet has gotten millions of dollars in COVID relief aid because of the fact that they're a healthcare company and are so classed as, you know, essential to the functioning of the country. Right. And of course, you know, they didn't become one of the largest for-profit healthcare companies in the country by giving a shit about their workers. So they took that money and instead of using it to, you know, improve staffing levels, improve pay, improve their facilities, make quality of safer. care for patients. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, no. Instead, as you mentioned, they're using that money to not only hire scabs to try and bust up this strike. They've also been hiring a round the clock police details at any of the places where their, their workers have been on strike. And the thing that really I think should be, obviously this is all bullshit and it's, it's all horrible. But on, I believe, one of their like shareholder calls, uh, one of the, the one of the things that their CEO Ronald Rittenmeyer boasted about was that they spent one point one billion dollars during over the last year to buy forty five surgery centers in nine states, and that's about the same amount of money they received in COVID relief. So basically, the government gave this company money ostensibly to be able to keep their doors open, to be able to keep paying salaries during the pandemic to theoretically, as you were saying, John, like improve patient care. And instead they used it to buy up, you know, competing facilities and further consolidate their semi-monopolistic position in the market. Right. Yeah. I mean, like that's the main thing is like people are like, oh, the government gives these companies too much money. Uh, they, they need to let them sink or float and i'm like no they need to nationalize all of their fucking assets and like you said dan like charge the board with fucking crimes because like when you are turning around and you're offering up like here's a billion dollars in covid aid so that you a major provider of healthcare in this company can stay open and afloat and can keep people alive and then you turn around and spend it on a, a speculative purchase of 45 surgery centers across the united states uh i mean like and the fact that there's no red tape that says that you can't do that there's 
there's no right. like system of accountability present in the United States whatsoever for that kind of behavior. I mean, that's a fucking criminal activity. That's a that's a crime against the people of this country right right there, and especially against the staff who they're criminally underserving and underpaying, and against the patients that are being criminally underserved and uh, undercared for. Yeah, this sort of stuff. Like, this is a bit of a tangent, but there's been a bunch of talk lately, and we covered this a while back, but there's been a bunch of stories recently coming out now that the expanded unemployment benefits are winding down and the the government isn't looking like they're going to extend them at all, trying to essentially demonize the entire program of spending enhanced uh, unemployment insurance by... Mm -hmm fear-mongering about unemployment fraud. Oh, there could be all of this money between $5 and $400 billion. <laughs> these these right, insane right. estimates that they just pull out of their ass. But it, So there's this entire whole apparatus trying to fear-monger about theoretical unemployment fraud. When you have all of these for-profit companies, these gigantic multi-billion dollar firms just taking billions and billions and billions of dollars from the government and using it to essentially like further monopolize each one of their industries, not using it for any of the stuff that they were theoretically supposed to use it for. It's just, so it ends up just being this enormous wealth transfer, accelerating all of the stuff that we saw during the height of the pandemic, you know, where you had something, I believe it was like one where you had like the working class ended up losing like $1.3 trillion in wealth and the billionaire portion of the U S ruling class gained approximately $1.3 trillion in wealth. And like this sort of stuff is a big part of that because, it's essentially just a a wealth transfer of taxes, which again, only working people pay, like because rich people mm-hmm. don't ever pay their taxes, and giving it to these corporations ostensibly so they could keep the economy running, but really so that they can, you know, further consolidate that ruling position and eliminate competition. And 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 this is is supposed to be, you know, the big bailout thing that is supposed to be the wonderful bipartisan measure that that the legislature was able to pass, but it's like, well, there's a reason both parties supported it. It's because they're just directly transferring money to the donor Mm -hmm. class that funds both the Democrats and the Republicans. And you're leaving these fucking nurses hanging for six fucking months while they're on strike. Six fucking months to be out of work and relying on strike funds is a long ass fucking time. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. And they, they, they mentioned in this article that a couple of years ago, um, Massachusetts did have a ballot measure that would have established legal minimums for nurse to patient ratio, but, and, and I mean, I, I live near Massachusetts. So like, I, I remember all the, all of the, you know, ads and stuff for this, but tenant and, and a bunch of other major for-profit, uh, healthcare companies spent tons and tons of money on constant ads, propaganda, mailers out to people trying to imply that this restriction would just destroy the healthcare industry. It would drive them into bankruptcy and that that would destroy healthcare for people. And so unfortunately, you know, that ballot measure didn't pass and and that's what's allowed tenant to continue to do this and continue cutting staff during a pandemic to try and make the maximum profit they possibly can. Absolutely. 
Well, uh, speaking of one of the ways that you would need to go about fighting this kind of thing when you're facing a uh, company that has tendrils all across the United States and is ever expanding, we want to talk about Portland Nabisco workers who went on strike, called for a boycott, and then subsequently instigated a nationwide Nabisco strike, uh, which is pretty fucking incredible that these just 200 members of the bakery, confectionery, and tobacco workers and Grain Miller's local 364 uh, in a bakery in Portland, Oregon, initially struck uh, starting on the 10th of this month, prompted by the company's refusal to pay overtime when employees are required to work weekends, ended up prompting a nationwide strike of Nabisco workers that has pretty quickly put the company on the back foot. Oh, I was just going to say, like, this is one of the strikes, the the rare strikes that I've actually seen get quite a bit of mainstream coverage Mm -hmm. uh, relatively compared to a lot of these because the speed at which this strike spread has been pretty impressive. Like the, the clearly the, the problems that the, the Nabisco workers around the country are facing are, pretty endemic to all of their sites and not, not just the, the facility here in Portland and specifically like their, the, their grievances that they've mentioned really brought to, to mind for me, a lot of the same stuff that we heard from the Frito-Lay workers who were recently on right. strike because they've mentioned that basically like, cause uh, I will say just to, to, you know, tip of the hat to more perfect union because they've been doing a ton of great coverage on this. It's where we got like a lot of the information for this. Mm-hmm. So, um, Keep definitely follow them to to keep up with the the developments on this, but specifically the workers that they talk to point out that these jobs at these Nabisco bakeries, you know, making all the million snack foods that Nabisco makes, you know, Chips Ahoy, Oreos, uh, you know, Barnum's Animal Crackers, all that stuff, um, mm-hmm. that they were have basically been converting these jobs from you know your standard five day a week, eight hour day jobs to three, four, five, six day a week, 12 hour day jobs. And they've recently, after closing two of their US facilities, have been demanding that these workers accept 12 hour days working on the weekends with only being paid straight time. So no overtime, no time and a half. And they've had people that they've pushed to work this up to 70 consecutive days without a day off. Jesus Christ. So like, this is basically, you're being asked to work 10, 12 hour days for over two months without a single day off all while being paid straight time for that, that work. No, no time and a half at all. Cause I know like there's some folks who depending on your situation may be happy to take the occasional piece of overtime to get that, that bonus money. But I, I mean, I can't imagine anybody wanting to work those hours for 70 consecutive days and and at, to be only paid straight time the whole time. And as if that wasn't bad enough, as part of these contract negotiations, they are trying to institute a two-tier healthcare system like so many of these other companies have been doing, basically making new employees have to pay much, much more for their health insurance to the point where these combined combination of increased healthcare costs and the reduction in overtime by, you know, cutting people the time from straight from time and a half to straight time could mm-hmm. cost some of these workers up to $40,000 a year compared to their current contract rates. 
And so, this is money that's being siphoned out of workers' pockets to enrich Mondelez International, the parent yep. company of Nabisco, a huge multinational corporation that made over $3.5 billion in profits last year. So yeah. it's not like this is some mom and pop shop that it can't stay alive if it raises its workers' wages, which is a lie even when it's true. But like this is a major corporation that could easily, easily improve the lives of these workers. And that also has a history of simply closing down factories in the United States. Uh, it says here that they shut down in the last uh, in the last year. Nabisco has shut down at least two major U.S. facilities, one in Georgia and one in New Jersey, and sent those 1,000 formerly union jobs to Mexico. Uh, Mexican Nabisco workers are often paid a dollar a day, and their only benefit is a bus ride to work. And then the local... 364, their membership have reported that management has been trying to argue that the benefits they receive in the U.S. are only possible because Mexican workers are paid so little. So this is one of those like weird acts of recuperation that the capitalist class is always trying to do where they want you to think that like, oh, well, we've got it better than the Mexican workers. And, and, uh, and it's only because they're so incredibly exploited that we have this luxury and that's always a, 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 a cover. It's, it's a not true and B always a cover for them to just continue to take things away from you in the future. So you can turn around and be like, well, at least we have it better than the Mexican workers. Yeah. All the while Nabisco is taking your jobs and shipping them off to Mexico. So yeah, like it's, you know, the classic tactic of just trying to use xenophobia to mm -hmm. try and 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 like split workers and and basically put the blame for this on work on hyper exploited workers in Mexico instead of fucking Mondelez, right? <laughs> who is only doing this to make more money. And one of the things that I appreciated in in one of the articles on this uh, Liberation News doing doing some really good militant journalism inter interviewing people on the picket line in Portland, where they pointed out that. It, thankfully, there's been a lot of pushback on that messaging by these workers who have been striking, basically. And they, there was a quote in here from a speaker at a rally for the striking Nabisco workers who said, nobody here is asking for Mexican workers to be exploited. And right. they, they, the member specifically told uh, Liberation News that their international has been running radio ads in Mexico to try and help educate workers there and get Nabisco workers in Mexico to unionize, to get and strike for higher wages, better benefits. And so that, you know, to try and help with the situation of hyper exploitation there, which I mm -hmm. think is, is really good to see from, from this union because we've seen, I mean, a million times to the point where it's basically a fucking meme. It's, it's like a cliche, so much of a cliche of, Unfortunately, how in a lot of cases, these big companies can be very successful in diverting blame off of them, their own, you know, exploitative profit seeking measures by saying that, well, you know, these people in this other country are willing to work for so much cheaper. Guess it's their fault. We right. have to do this. It's like, well, the, you could pay the workers in Mexico a living wage. You choose not to because you want to exploit the shit out of them the same way that you're exploiting the workers in the United States. Right. And so I, I really was glad to see the, the workers making that connection and, and just re completely rejecting that, you know, xenophobic, usually very racist narrative that, mm -hmm. that Monolez is, is trying to put out there and that so many other 
American companies try and do when they do this shit where they'll they'll be like we're moving moving jobs to Mexico or moving jobs to India you better be mad at the people there instead of us the people actually closing the plant and exploiting all the workers yeah so i mean shouts out to the to the union and all of the international outreach and everything that they're doing because that's exactly the right uh, tactic and attitude to have. Like Dan said, if your boss is telling you that like your benefits rely on the exploitation of Mexican workers or any kind of workers outside the country, your immediate response should be, fuck it, I'm fighting for their rights then too. Uh, That's that right. is absolutely the fucking correct way to go and it it's badass to see these workers moving forward with that kind of activity. Yeah, and so very quickly, um, this strike that started in Portland rapidly spread across mm-hmm. the country to uh, basically every Nabisco bakery in the U S because now in addition to the 200 striking workers in Portland, you've got 400 workers on strike in Richmond, Virginia. You've got workers uh, on strike at their bakery in Chicago, workers at their distribution center in Aurora, Colorado. And just as of, I believe yesterday morning workers in Georgia also on strike so you've got a total of a thousand Nabisco workers on strike, basically disrupting the their entire U.S. supply chain. Right, and specifically, they, there was a, another interview where uh, Motherboard uh, had interviewed one of the workers at that distribution center in, in Aurora, Colorado, who said that over the twenty-five years that he'd been working there, this is a uh, warehouse worker, Rusty Lewis, who said, "quote It's gotten worse. It's gotten horrible. Horrible hours. They don't care about frontline workers. They only care about the almighty dollar. We're tired of getting stepped on and treated like trash. We've had enough." Hell yeah. And yeah, exactly. Like that's exactly the like that he's got it exactly right. And I'm glad to hear that sort of stuff from these workers. And you know, uh, some folks, if you're extremely online and have been on Twitter. Uh, one of the the weird aspects of this strike has been yeah. the relationship to Danny DeVito, <laughs> because uh, Danny DeVito, who has been a you know an outspoken Bernie supporter and supporter of various left causes, he specifically uh, tweeted about the strike in relation to the workers' call for a boycott of Nabisco products mm-hmm. for the duration of the strike, saying no contracts, no snacks, and then weirdly lost his verification. Yeah, his his blue check mark went away like within an hour after posting that, I believe. And I checked on his account today. It's back. Danny DeVito is re-verified by Twitter. But uh, it just, you know, it, it's impossible for me to believe that that was like a glitch or a hiccup or a coincidence. Like Twitter really did take a look at Danny DeVito yeah. and they're like, oh, he's speaking out about unions a little too strongly. Let's take away the blue check for a day and a half and uh, see if that doesn't <laughs> uh, tamp his energy down. Uh, and of course, Danny DeVito, not one to be stopped by any kind of interference, has just been posting through it like a badass. So yeah, and like obviously, you know, like the losing your blue check is not the same thing as being exploited by you know these sort of horrible no. conditions. But it's just, I just think it's an interesting illustration of of you know how lockstep these communications platforms like Twitter are right. with the capitalist industrial class. And their commitment to anti-labor policies that, that, you know, they would do this relatively inconsequential, but still very obvious anti-worker move. Right. And, I mean, it, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's an indication, it's a symptom that the ruling classes have class consciousness and solidarity yes. with one another. And the proletarian classes uh, need to at least match that <laughs> if we're ever going to have any yeah. luck wresting power away from them. 
Yeah, for sure. And so, uh, you know, of course, unsurprisingly, Mondelez announced on Friday that they're going to start bringing in scabs to maintain their production during the strike, which is why there's been a call from all of these workers to boycott Nabisco for the duration of the strike. Um, there's a bunch of, you know, TikToks and, and tweets and stuff that, that are out there. If you just take a look, that'll tell you, you know, what the stuff that Nabisco makes mm-hmm. is. And in addition, there are strike funds that have been set up for at least the workers in Portland and Richmond. And, and I've got the links for those and we'll put them in the show notes for this episode. If folks want to mm-hmm. donate to help out these, uh, you know, workers so that as the, the longer this drags on, they're able to support themselves and, you know, buy food and, and, and be able to keep, keep the strike going, keep the pressure on Nabisco and Mondelez and, and get the rights that they deserve in their new contract. Absolutely. 100%. And uh, speaking of trying to get the rights that they deserve in a new contract, uh, we want to talk about electrical workers in Richland, Washington and electrical line workers with IBEW Local 77 in Richland, Washington. The quote unquote Richland line crew, as they refer to themselves, have been picketing for almost a month now to draw attention to the low pay, constant overtime and use of contract labor by the city government. So these are workers who are doing electrical repairs Um are they work? They're working directly for the city, right? So they're yeah. doing like city infrastructure things, public yeah, transportation the, stuff, street municipal lights. electrical workers. Okay, uh, and this is one of the deadliest jobs in the com- country. A rate of twenty fatal injuries per one hundred thousand workers reported annually. So that's like I think point oh two percent of electrical workers suffer a a fatal um, electrocution every year. Yeah. Um, And the IBEW business manager, Rex Habner, uh, came out and just said it. He said, our line workers are paid 7% less than other journeyman line workers in our market. We're the second lowest paid utility in the state of Washington. Uh, And despite the discrepancies, Habner says the city of Richland feels the Richland line crew are being, quote, greedy for demanding fair wages, which is just fucking ridiculous. I mean, this this piggybacks on the back of... um, what I mean, Street Fighter Radio has done a great job talking about this when they're talking about jobs that are more dangerous than being a police officer. Yeah, there's so exactly. many jobs out there, like being an electrician, being a roofer, uh, working with concrete, uh, working building skyscrapers, working on tall buildings that are just Be- not paid in any kind of fair compensation relative to the the difficulty and dangerousness of their jobs. Yeah, I mean, being a I know it's it's not you know necessarily what I think a lot of people think of when they think of dangerous work, but even being like a pizza delivery driver is 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 actually mm-hmm. one of the most dangerous jobs in the country, and and you know they and and neither do and electrical line workers who is by, consistently one of the deadliest jobs in the country right. never get that same sort of respect you know for for that sort of work that the the absurd like cultish praise that our society throws on police for, you know, doing a job that is entirely revolving around, you know, repressing workers and harassing and attacking, you know, minority groups in the, in the country. Meanwhile, you have these folks who are out there literally, you know, risking their lives to keep people's lights on and, and they're being nickel and dimed by this city government here in Richland and so, like this is this is a couple more pieces from Liberation News, who have been been covering this story on the ground there in Richland, and, and interviewing folks on the line, and, and and also you know going to the the meetings that they've been having. 
And specifically, one of the complaints that these workers have been talking about is that the low wages that are being offered there have, you know, made it a, not an attractive environment for people to work. And so they've had trouble maintaining staffing levels necessary to hit all the repairs and maintenance that, you know, electrical utilities need. And so as a way to substitute that, they the, the city has been hiring contractors mm-hmm. who are better paid per hour, but of course don't have the permanent job security that permanent workers do. And the problem that you run into with that is that, you know, while contract line workers are are also doing good work and, and doing the same dangerous labor, because these contracting firms that contract out these workers are doing this on a project to project to project basis and aren't necessarily invested in that community. They're not, they don't have that permanent long-term, you know, uh, material interest in making sure that the work is done necessarily to the high level of quality and the, and making sure that maintenance and, and long-term sort of stuff that you have to do is done that you run the risk by depending on contract labor for this sort of thing of ending up with work that, isn't done, you know, quite to the standard that you're hoping for. And one of the things that they mentioned in here specifically was that one of the big fires that recently happened on the West Coast, the the campfire that burned the city of Paradise to the ground, this was a a quote from a local Ask Me uh, member, Ginger Wireman, at a city council meeting. They had to talk about this, who mentioned that the piece of equipment that started that fire was a $19 part. And it wasn't repaired because PG&E decided that it would be cheaper to skimp on maintenance. And so she she continues, the fact we're trying to lowball and drag these guys along when they have provided such a valuable service to us and such reliable, safe electrical power is obscene. Yep. And she's absolutely right. And just from like a personal anecdote, like I know most people in the country are going to be working on some sort of privatized electrical delivery system. Uh, But there have been like a couple of places that I've lived that have actually had municipally run power. And when it's actually appropriately funded and the city actually, you know, spends the money on that shit, the by far the most reliable power service I have ever had was in municipalized, uh, town, a town that actually ran its own utilities. And so like, obviously that's just one of the, the things that shows, you know, the absurdity of having privatized utilities in the first place, but then to have that advantage and then decide, well, why don't we just not pay these guys, you know, to do this incredibly dangerous work, right? Like that is such an abdication of the, the, the city's responsibility to the yeah. people that live in that town. Well, and routinely bringing in temp workers, no matter how fucking skilled they are, contract workers is just going to have a detrimental effect on the quality of the infrastructure that you have. Like it's a, it doesn't take a a rocket scientist to realize that like you're going to get better maintenance on a transformer. If the same individual comes and does the routine inspection on that transformer every two or four years or whatever it is compared to having a different person show up each time and have to from scratch uh, figure out all of the potential problems with this, you know, transformer or any other piece of equipment and then have to fly by the seat of their pants on, you know, with a piece of equipment they might've never interacted with before. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and thankfully, um, one good thing about this story is that 
the line crew workers have been getting a lot of support from the local area. Mm -hmm. It mentions in here that they've been joined on the picket line by members of UA Local 598, uh, from the plumbers and and steamfitters in the Tri-Cities, retired members of Iron Workers Local 14, members of IBEW Local Unions 125 and 48 from Oregon, and members of IBEW Local Union 3 who are who came out to support them all the way from New York. Hell so, yeah. God damn. And in a and in addition, there, like I mentioned, there was a recent city council meeting on the issue where they basically, because obviously if folks have ever participated in or watched city council meetings, for the most part, they're usually pretty empty and dry and boring and not a lot mm-hmm. of people participate in them, which is part of, you know, what they want. They don't, don't really want public, civic participation. But Despite they mentioned what that parks the, and recreation might lead you to believe. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. They mentioned in here that that on the recent uh, city council meeting to address this issue, that they were able to bring in supporters to completely pack the house, including a big contingent from the local Ask Me, the local PSL that had showed up to support these workers. And they they, they even had a quote in here from a resident of Richland, uh, Ronald Omberg, who has lived in Richland for 53 years, and this was the first city council meeting that he's ever attended, and said, quote, I know no member of Richmond linemen personally, but I consider them our friends and neighbors. When there's a power outage at, say, one in the morning, you make a phone call, and these are our friends and neighbors who will get out of bed to go about their dangerous work to get power to our houses again. That's and, absolutely and right. That's, re- that's really the whole thing, I, I think, there. Is, is, it's like these are when – you, when you hear the term essential worker – like, I mean, kind of pretty much everything that we've covered in this episode today, like nurses, electrical workers, you know, grocery store workers, like these are the folks that that's what that means. And and so to have like a town could just decide not to pay those folks for whatever reason when, and I understand, you know, municipal budgets can be kind of tight, but every single state in the country did just get a big package of money from right. the the big stimulus bill. So at the very least in the short term, there should be no problem funding these guys. And like just in general of all the things to prioritize on your city's budget, (laughs) your municipal electricity should be pretty fucking high on that list. It's like, okay, we need teachers and we need electrical workers and you know, you need some other, you you know, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Healthcare workers, trash collectors, all that stuff. But I'm sure even without looking into it, that the number one expenditure in Richland, Washington's budget, and and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I will wager I'm not, is their police force. Undoubtedly. And I guarantee you they could pull plenty of money from that budget to, to shore up these guys' salaries so they're making an actual honest wage that is reflective of the dangerous and important work that they're doing, unlike the bullshit we hear about how dangerous and important police work is, which is complete nonsense. Absolutely. I mean, the lion's share of almost every city's budget is its police force. And if when they complain that they can't fund other things, it's because they need to set aside, you know, whatever, $20 million to buy, uh, you know, uh, excess last year's model military equipment from the military so they can keep that whole uh, industrial military machine going as well. Absolutely. So uh, on that extremely uplifting note... um, (laughs) Let's move into the meme review. This first one's really fucking funny. <laughs> I love this one. 
It's not even a meme really as it's just a photo <laughs> and it says spotted on the Nabisco strike picket line in uh, PDX today. That's Portland, right? Downtown yeah. Portland. And it's just, um, it's Danny DeVito. And the, so anyway, I started blasting a uh, photo, <laughs> yeah. but he's holding picket signs and they say strike and contract and it says, so anyway, I started striking, which is just <laughs> really choice. Yeah. I, I love that the the workers in Portland were able to just right away bring up that 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 Twitter engagement right onto the picket line because it's a Hell great yeah. sign. <laughs> yeah, it's important to move fast and be meme aware when you're making your picket signs for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. You gotta be on top of it. And and these folks are cutting edge with their with their picket line memes. <laughs> This next one is just a, a tweet captioning a, a news story, but I think it will resonate with uh, a lot of our listeners, especially anybody who's, who's ever worked in service of any kind. And so the headline that it's quoting is, a Starbucks customer says an employee smacked her in the face with a wet rag after she complained her drink was made incorrectly. <laughs> and the caption from the, this person uh, at Ginkgo Crown just says, it hurts to see other people living your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, this, this one really hits close to home because when I was working at Star, I know the exact wet rag that they're talking about. <laughs> they're these like white microfiber cloths that are the standard at Starbucks. I still have about 10 of them because they were really <laughs> easy to steal. Um, and it does, it does hurt to see someone else uh, living your dream. <laughs> yeah. Cause remember folks, the customer is almost always wrong. Like almost, yeah, almost universally incorrect. If I had a nickel for every time the customer was right, I would have one nickel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And then, so the next one we've got here is another, you know, this is one's a little shifting topics, very, uh, very much more along the, the news lines. I, I assume mm -hmm. this is a, I assumed this was a teenage stepdad joint, but it doesn't have any of the means TV branding that a, the, a lot of his stuff has had lately. So now, yeah, this uh, might just be another person who actually like a meme maker, who's actually kind of good at graphic design. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I guess I just kind of assume that any meme that has really well done art and is on the left is made by teenage steps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it's just G.I. Joe, uh, but instead of G.I. Joe, it says the CIA created the Taliban uh, with help from Britain's MI6 and Pakistan's ISI. The formation of the Taliban was part of the CIA's disastrous Operation Cyclone. <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> Which, yeah, like, I, this, is I, even, this is even better than the memes where it was like, did you know the CIA let a bunch of teenagers loose in the woods of Montana? Look up Operation Northwoods to learn more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do love that genre, but I really love the way that they, this one uses all of that like G.I. Joe like cartoon slash toy packaging yeah. graphic design where it's got the, the, like what is supposed to be, you know, like the, what is it? Like Cobra or whatever is the, the bad mm -hmm. guy for the ninjas. And it, but it says just operation cyclone on there. Look it up. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but big, big fans of, of any of these very educational memes that, that, that try to use this sort of formatting to get people to learn some of the parts of history that they don't usually teach us in our schools. So but that is, uh, has all been admitted by the CIA at some point in history and is absolutely legitimate, verifiable, verifiable historical fact and not some fucking tinfoil hat shit like your fucking yeah. conservative uncle might lead you to believe. 
Uh, yeah. Speaking yeah. of conservative uncles, we have America's <laughs> America's conservative uncle George W. Bush uh, painting in the next meme, but the painting has been replaced with three Spider Men pointing at each other, <laughs> and they're labeled Biden, Trump, and Obama. Which is like, there's so much going on in this meme. I'm not even sure I get it, honestly. Well, so, so my interpretation, I, I put this in here because I love this meme because I think it works on a few different levels. Sure. But spe- specifically for right now, uh, because there's so much discourse around the the U.S.'s defeat in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and you've got you know different groups of libs, the ones that aren't in the media class, just constantly calling for us to reinvade, who are saying, "No, no, it's the collapse isn't Biden's fault; it's Trump's fault." And then right. you have you'll have some group of people saying, "No, it's not Trump's fault. He wanted to get out of Afghanistan. Obama was the one who surged in Afghanistan." Right, and. And and really, ultimately, it's the fault of every executive of the U.S. empire. But what I appreciate about this meme is the fact that a lot of the discourse, despite the fact that, you know, this all goes back to when the war started. And really, you know, as the previous meme mentions, even 20 years before that. Right. I really haven't seen very much from the media talking about how, you know, George W. Bush was the president who fucking invaded Afghanistan. Exactly. So. Like there's just been all of this discourse on who to blame and almost none of it seems to be focused on him. Well, yeah, because it, the question isn't, should we have gone to war or not? It's, w- were we competent enough at war? Right. And that's right. the conversation they want us to have is like, are we doing war good enough? Because then <laughs> right. no matter what your answer is, the real answer is always, we have to try again and do more war, which is what yeah. they fucking want because it's incredibly fucking profitable for them right. and their friends. I mean, Bush's vice president was Dick fucking Cheney like that. That was the era when like the wool should have come off of everyone's eyes and been like, Oh, this is just an oil grab and a drug grab and a lithium grab and then a resource grab. Like this is textbook imperialism right here. Yeah. And you had $2 trillion that were funneled from, you know, the tax coffers into the pockets of all the various weapons contractors, including as like Halliburton, as you mentioned. Right. And, and yet it seems like, I don't know if it's, you know, just because of how quickly everything moves, how slow the, how, how short the media wants our memory to be. But be, there's been this attempt in, in, in some places to kind of almost rehabilitate Bush, especially during yes. the Trump era. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when they had like him go on fucking Ellen and it's just like this guy is like directly responsible for the deaths of a million people in Iraq, hundreds of thousands of people in Afghanistan. And yep. so like of course obviously some blame for the debacle of, of of the war in Afghanistan goes to Obama and Trump and Biden. But the fact that everybody's trying to decide which of those three to blame or you know sometimes somehow blaming the Af- the Afghan people or right. blaming the American public for not supporting colonialism enough the, instead of blaming Bush, the system that gave us four presidents in a row with right. indiscernible Afghanistan uh policy uh yeah, yeah. exactly you you just get this mindless bloodthirsty like you know uh circular firing squad. And, and so that's what I, I really liked about this meme is you've got, you've, you've got Bush doing one of his weird shitty paintings and, but it's, it's this, it's the Spider-Man meme of like, Oh yeah, they're blaming all these other people instead of me. How, right. how, how nice. 
Well, and uh, speaking of really triangulating where the responsibility for something lies, <laughs> our last meme is just a doge in a hard hat. Uh, and, you know, there's a uh, there's a steamroller in the background uh, flattening out a road. And he just looking in the camera, he says, OK, so let me get this straight. The boss took some sort of risk and I'm just supposed to give a fuck. Uh, <laughs> which is the greatest sentiment of all time. Because if you've ever heard like a small business owner or like a, a contractor or somebody be like, look, look, I'm assuming all the risk here. It's like what fucking risk you filled out some insurance forms and like did a, it's the same way a landlord assumes risk, but assuming risk really just means I call the plumber instead of you. Yeah, um, yeah. Like I saw some fucking right wing meme that was trying to be like, socialism destroyed where, where they were like, Oh yeah, no, we agree. The workers should share all the profits and then they should also share all the risk. And, and, and it's set up like, that's a gotcha. It's like right. the workers already do absorb yes. all the risk. Like when these companies lose money, the CEO doesn't lose their fucking house. It's all the workers who bear the brunt of all that. So like the working class is already taking all the risk. And right. yet, like you're saying, they keep this whole fucking facade that all of the risk in any of these enterprises is borne out by the boss, and that's why they should get paid more. Yeah, and risk so, is when you incorporate as an LLC, right? Risk, <laughs> right. Is, risk is, when you, uh, is when you pay payroll taxes at the end of the year instead of income <laughs> taxes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so Worker Doge here is absolutely right. Like, the boss is full of shit, like... It, the risk has always been assumed and dumped onto the workers. And that's why, well, I mean, part of the reason why that the workers should be the ones running the businesses and the exactly. ones seeing all the gains from it, making all of the decisions. That's exactly. right. Well, speaking of making all of the decisions, uh, <laughs> we're going to call the episode here, uh, mostly cause we're out of memes and articles. But this has been another episode of Work Stoppage. I'm going to try to do the outro now. Lena usually does this, so forgive me if I'm doing it wrong. But we are entirely listener-supported. If you want to throw us a few bucks on Patreon, it really goes a long way towards supporting the show. And it will also grant you access to some of the overtime episodes we've been doing. We just released some uh, a three-parter on the nature of the state. And we have a lot more good content coming for you on that end. If you're not in the Discord already, get in there. That's where you can see the memes from the meme review. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast systems reviews you think would do the most to help other people find the show. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter now at WorkStoppagePod. You can follow me at Facebook Villain. Don't forget to listen to Beep Beep Lettuce and Red Game Table and uh, Solidarity Forever. Oh, Labor Peace is not in our interest. Solidarity Forever. That's right. Solidarity, folks. <laughs> All right.